tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, Episode 20 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. We're coming to the home stretch of Season 15, and I confess I forgot to mention our continued Season Pass Rent to Own program this season. So if you've been buying individual, full-length episodes this season and have purchased at least 14 of them, you're eligible to upgrade to the full Season Pass 15. You just need to send an email to admin at thenosleeppodcast.com and list which episodes you've purchased. We'll get your Season Pass set up for you. And it's always great to see one of our authors release a new book. Author William Stewart has graced us with a number of excellent tales in recent seasons. He has a new collection of his short stories called A Trick of the Light. Haunted houses, vengeful spirits, and crazed killers are just a few of the things waiting for you in William's second collection. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. And speaking of a collection of horror stories, ours are ready to go. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet a grandfather sharing stories with his grandson. Sounds wholesome, right? Well, it's not so wholesome when Granddad is a former detective sharing some of his more gruesome cases. And as we learn from author Nick Bottick, when he starts recalling the mysterious cold cases that still haunt him, things take a very dark turn. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford and Jesse Cornett. So enjoy those old cases. Just try to avoid the stories about the impossible ones. I've heard a lot of stories from my grandfather. He was a detective for 27 years of his life, and I grew up listening to the tales of he and his fellow lawmen. Now, as a child, he obviously amended the stories quite a bit to make them age-appropriate. But as I grew up, more and more of the true stories came out. Starting about two years ago, my grandpa got sick. He's been on a slow decline ever since. And while it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with, his illness acted as the catalyst for a set of stories he'd never brought up before. He said he kept them filed away deep in the folder he doesn't like to open. He calls them the impossible ones. But this last one, the one he told me last night, he says it's the one that still keeps him up some nights, the one he thinks about every day. 
He said he's looked over the case files more times than he can count, done a full re-examination of it more times than he can remember, and it never makes any more sense. He said he only told me now because he can feel in his bones that he doesn't have a lot of time left. I recorded him telling me the story, so what follows is my transcription of the case, verbatim. I've only excluded his coughing fits and any off-topic remarks made during the telling of the case. The case was murder-kidnapping. At least that's what a little like. Then it was me and Olson. Now I've told you about him. There was a family, the Nebels. There was Benjamin, the husband, Jennifer, the wife, and Katie, a six-year-old daughter. One of their neighbors had gone out for the paper around 6 a.m. and saw the Nebels' front door wide open. When she went over to see if everything was okay, she saw the wife's body. The neighbor called 911 and eventually we were sent over there. Now, when I say there were no outward signs of a struggle, I mean it. There was no sign whatsoever that anything had happened. Well, except for the dead body. But even her body... There were no wounds, no marks of any kind, and I'm getting ahead of myself. On our way to the house, it came over the radio that the husband and daughter were unaccounted for. And if you're thinking the husband did it, we did too, obviously. Problem was, both the family's cars were still in the garage, so... We think they might be on foot. Some officers canvassed the neighborhood and no one had seen them, including two neighbors that were on their porches for hours starting in the early morning. No one had heard any kind of commotion coming from their house either. I mentioned the wife's body. She didn't have a hair out of place. She was on her back in the kitchen and a third of her upper body was under the table. Now we found out after the autopsy that, uh, well, she'd just died. There was no cause that they could find. She'd been a perfectly healthy woman, didn't smoke, didn't drink, ate right, exercised. It was like she'd just blinked her eyes and gone from alive dead. Anyways, we searched the house. We went through it with a fine-tooth comb, a basement to attic, found nothing. No evidence of a struggle, no weapon, nothing. So, we left. We spent hours in that house, thought maybe we should come back in a day or two with some fresh eyes. We went over to where Benjamin worked, he was a supervisor at a lumberyard. According to his co-workers, he'd shown up at work that morning just before 5 a.m. When he got in, he worked on this narrow crate, this thing he was building in his office, something he'd 
told his co-workers was a project for his house. According to the morning supervisor, he'd only built about half of the thing. Around 6.15, he said he was running to the bathroom, and that was the last anyone saw of him. They never saw him leave. While we were at the lumberyard, I realized I'd left my notes at the house. We drove back over there, and we got there while they were taking the wife's body away. As soon as we walked in, the stench hit us like a bus. It was... well, it was what a newly discovered but long dead body smells like. We knew it obviously couldn't have been the wife. We asked a few of the officers and forensic folks that were still at the house what the smell was, and they told us that it had only started a few minutes before we'd gotten back there. I'm not exaggerating when I say the smell was everywhere in the house. I've smelled some dead ones before, but this smelled like every wall in the place was lined with corpses. Pretty quickly, we found that the smell was strongest leading up to the attic. Now, I told you before, we checked the attic. I checked it myself probably five times, but we went back up. Me and Olson. I was up the little pull-down ladder first, and when I poked my head up, I saw something. I saw a piece of wood, like a box, you know, a crate. It was shaped kind of like a rifle case, maybe three feet tall and two feet wide, maybe six inches deep and rectangular. It was standing straight up and there was blood leaking from it. We called the photographers and all the people in there. They all do their thing. Finally, they pull out all the nails and open the box. Out falls the husband. Think about that. This guy was maybe 5'10". 140 pounds, and he was put in a three-foot by two-foot by six-inch crate. His bones were just a mess. His insides, all of his organs, they, they were flattened. They were just wet, squishy pieces of fabric, almost. He was stuffed in there like... I, I don't know what like. He was just a rectangle of blood and skin and parts. His skin had the discoloration of a body that had been dead for about two weeks, which obviously didn't make sense since they'd seen him at work that morning. He was also missing his eyeballs. And we were standing there trying to rationalize the whole situation when something caught everyone's ears at the same time. A little girl's voice 
calling out for help. And what followed was a sequence of all the people in the attic and the rest of the house and the people out on the lawn and the people that were standing on the other side of the yellow tape, all saying some variation of the phrase, It sounds like it's coming from over there. Problem was, every single person swore they heard it coming from a different direction. Me, I heard it from above me, no kidding. The first time I heard that little voice say, help me, I looked straight up, right up to the rafters. Of course, she wasn't there. It's, it's just my brain's response to where it perceived her voice was coming from. We had to listen to everyone of these people tell us where they thought they heard the voice coming from. People swore up and down they'd heard it coming from the kitchen cabinets and the bedroom closets and the refrigerator, the tank behind the toilet, for God's sake. The people on the street said they heard it from underneath cars, from behind trees, on the side of the houses next to the needles. Everyone heard her voice for about a minute and a half. Two minutes, Tops. And, and then it, it, it just stopped. About two weeks after that day, the wife's sister had a funeral for Jennifer, and it went fine, and they buried her, all that. And the husband's remains were cremated not long after that and put on display in a different part of the cemetery. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at some point over the few weeks after he was cremated, someone stole his urn. It was missing for about six months, and then one day we get a call and find out a groundskeeper at the cemetery had called in. Wife, the wife had been dug up and posed like she was leaning against the grave and just relaxing. She had the urn in her hands, but it was wrapped in skin. Well, they tested it, and, and it was the husband's skin. They'd pretty well reconstructed the man after he'd poured out the crate and he hadn't been missing any skin. And remember, I told you his skin was discolored. Well, this skin was perfectly preserved. And inside the urn, with his ashes, there were three eyeballs. Only one of them was the husband's. It's, it's been, what, 22 years? I still hear that girl's voice calling out sometimes. And I don't mean my memory or mind is playing tricks on me. Ask your grandmother. She's heard her. The same six-year-old voice. 
And then, I remember, it was May 12th, 2007. I was going to pick up a pizza for us. I, I saw that girl. I saw Katie Nebel. I don't mean I saw her grown up. I don't mean I saw a little girl that looked like her when she was young. I mean, I saw that fucking kid. She was standing outside the Walgreens right by our old house, crying. I pulled over and got out of the car, and I started to walk up to her. I can't explain how I felt in that moment. I was nauseous. I was so, so afraid. Terrified. More than I've ever been. She, she looked right at me and said in that same voice, Help me. Please. I don't know what the hell happened. But she just disappeared. I never took my eyes off of her. She was just there one second and gone the next. I thought I was losing my mind. I was seriously worried about my mental health, but then about an hour after I got back home, the phone rang. It was Olsen. I hadn't talked to the son of a bitch in five years. And he called me that night. Said he saw Katie Nebel sitting on a bus stop bench, crying. He lived on the other side of the country. Killed himself the next day. There's never... A good ending to these stories, I know. If there was, uh, they wouldn't be the impossible ones. I figured them out one way or the other. And I know I've told you some others, but... That girl's voice still wakes me up in the middle of the night. Sometimes I hear it from downstairs. Sometimes from the bathroom. Sometimes I'll be laying on my side, facing away from your grandmother. <laughs> and it'll sound like it's coming from her mouth. <laughs> we never found a trace of that girl, nothing. I told you what they do with those cases that... Uh, God damn it. I... I'm, I'm sorry, I... Let's... Uh, that, that's it. That's the worst one. Some of the other ones might sound worse to you, but that's... The worst for me. Okay. He told me he didn't want to talk about it anymore. And said that now that he told me he'd never talk about it again.
Sadly, we're all no doubt aware of the areas in our town where the neighborhoods aren't what they used to be. Abandoned buildings and boarded up homes. And as we learn from author Maxfield Gardner, some friends reminisce about an art project they used to work on which documented the fall of these parts of town, but some of the memories aren't ones they want to recall. I join Dan Zapula, Nicole Goodnight, and Atticus Jackson in performing this tale. So try to focus on the restoration of things. It's far better than dwelling on the urban decay. I hadn't thought of Zoe in about three years. There was no grand falling out. We went to the University of Pittsburgh together, and after our sophomore year, we just grew apart. Z and Malcolm were photography majors, and I was poli sci. So we saw each other less and less as our coursework took over more and more of our daily lives. We fell in with new friend circles and eventually graduated and went our separate ways without much more than a few words exchanged after commencement. Good luck, let's get together in a year or so after we're settled. We knew it wasn't actually going to happen. I was surprised when Zoe called me. I still had her number in my phone, but it had been buried under work contacts, in-laws, friends I'd made since college. When her name popped up, I just stared at it for a few seconds, unsure of what to expect. A death in the family, maybe. As it turned out, she just wanted to meet up for coffee. We had both stayed in Pittsburgh after graduation, so this didn't entail traveling across the entirety of Pennsylvania like visiting my parents did every year around Christmas. We found each other at a Starbucks in Oakland, not far from our old campus, and I could tell from the moment she waved at me Something was wrong. An almost imperceptible hesitation to her movements. When we sat at a corner table and talked, the wrongness at first was nothing but a slight tension in her voice, but it was there, and I think she knew I could hear it. We made small talk for a while, dancing around whatever it was Zoe really wanted to talk about. So, how you made out otherwise? Not bad. Uh, married. Nobody we went to school with. No kids yet. Um, maybe no kids at all. We haven't really decided. It just, it just feels like we're too young, you know? What about you and Sarah? Dude, I haven't dated Sarah Reynolds since junior year. She laughed. <laughs> it was maybe the first genuine display of emotion from her I'd seen since we'd sat down. It loosened up something inside her, I guess. Because next, she asked what I thought was a weird question. Hey, Chris. You, uh, you remember Malcolm? Z, we hung out every day for, like, two years. My memory's not that bad. How's he doing? He's gone. I felt my stomach lurch unpleasantly, like the whipped cream from my coffee had suddenly curdled. I said nothing for a few seconds. I'm not sure what that means. You mean, gone? Or... I, I just mean, gone. That tension had come back into her voice, worse than before. She hadn't been drinking her coffee. It was just there to give her something to wrap her hands around. She turned the conversation toward a project she and Malcolm had been working on during our sophomore year at Pitt. 
She didn't suppose I remembered, but I did. Not well at first, but it came back to me once we started talking about it, as though she hadn't just told me Malcolm was simply gone. Later, I wished she'd never brought it up. It started with an empty lot. I forget where it was, somewhere in Squirrel Hill, I think. For some reason, it stood out as we walked past. A corner parking lot covered with rubble from a demolished building none of us remembered behind a chain-link fence. Nothing remained of the structure but a single wall that stood over the piles of broken concrete, wood, and rebar. We couldn't think of what had been there, and Google Maps had been updated at some point, showing nothing but the building in the process of being demolished. Maybe it had been like that for a year or more. No construction equipment was in evidence. A few weeks later, Zoe brought up the idea that had been germinating in her head since we passed by the lot. Malcolm was already on board when she told me about it. It was always their project, and since we still got together regularly at the time, I sometimes found myself peripherally involved. Zoe wanted to chronicle urban decay in and around Pittsburgh through photos, the eventual goal being an exhibit in the Carnegie Library in Oakland. My coffee was now getting cold in front of me. I wasn't entirely sure where this topic was going, but it jogged loose a vivid memory from that time that had somehow slipped my mind despite the impression it had left on Zoe and me. We were out walking somewhere near Shenley Park, scouting for vacant lots, condemned buildings, and stuff like that for Zoe to shoot when we passed by a construction zone. Anyone who lives in Pittsburgh will know how obnoxious summer construction is around here. Apparently, they schedule everything at once, in the middle of the day, so it takes forever to get anywhere, especially downtown. If you're really lucky, they'll schedule it during a game at Heinz Field, so you could be at an absolute standstill for an hour getting from one block to the next. It's so ubiquitous that you could go right by it day after day and not even notice until something draws your attention to it. We were walking past one of these patches of construction work. Half the road blocked off as a detour around the face of whatever building it was they were working on. We could see several workers up on the scaffolding, standing on plank walkways or perched in a scissor lift about 30 feet off the ground. As we walked by, they started catcalling. I figured this was nothing Zoe wasn't used to, but the sound was unnerving. One of the workers whistled down at her and laughed. He didn't even say anything. No, nice cans, sweetheart. No, give me a smile, honey. Just a whistle. The guy in the scissor lift picked it up. The same whistle, the same pitch and length, even the same rude laughter at the end. All of them, half a dozen men in orange vests and hard hats, stood 30 feet above us and whistled and laughed one after the other then overlapping. We hurried past, creeped right the fuck out at this, and only started walking again when we'd turned a corner. Once we'd moved past them, we didn't hear them talking to each other. We didn't hear anything. The noise had just stopped. We said nothing as we waited for the bus. My skin prickled. 
The incident had made me think uncomfortably of birds mimicking one another, something false and strange. What the actual fuck? Yeah. It was all I could think to say. The bus showed up a minute later. The incident moved to the back of our minds for a while since finals were coming up. But it still lingered at the edges as something unusual that had happened. I dismissed it as some sort of weird prank, but even that felt wrong. A friend back east had construction workers in his family, an uncle and cousin, I think. So I was used to hearing vulgar jokes on a construction site. They could be assholes, but I didn't think they were ever, at any point, outright weird and creepy like the guys near Shenley Park. We went home after the residence halls closed for the summer, and I thought of it only rarely until the following semester. Zoe had been thinking about it, though. I could tell as soon as we met up on campus that fall, it had been on her mind. Sure enough, she wanted to go back to the same site. And I guess she had told Malcolm about the incident, so he wanted to come. He was always sort of overprotective of Z. I didn't think he'd start anything with the workers, if they were even still there, but that building was the last place I wanted to be. We got there around noon that Saturday, and my first thought was that we'd somehow gotten turned around in the park and ended up at the wrong site. But then I recognized the storefronts to either side, now empty and boarded up sometime over the summer. The building was gone. All that was left was a vacant lot behind a chain-link fence plastered with construction warnings, overgrown around the edges with weeds and a jumbled mess of concrete and broken glass. The scaffolding had been pushed to either side, up against the walls of the empty stores. Seven or eight workmen were gathered in front of a backhoe, talking, though I couldn't hear what was being said at that distance. Before I could ask Zoe if she was in agreement that this was kind of fucked up in some way we didn't yet understand, Malcolm had pried open a loose section of fencing and ducked inside, camera held up in front of him. Hey, can I talk to you guys a minute? I'm doing a photography project. The reaction from the workman was immediate. First, the foreman, or I guess he was the foreman, he looked like he was in charge at least, started toward Malcolm, one hand raised. I could hear him asking something. The other men sort of funneled around after him, caught up in his wake, until they settled in a half circle around Malcolm, all talking animatedly while he tried to make himself heard. Hey, hey, hey! What's your problem? Hey, hey! I couldn't make out anything else they were saying. I remember thinking that his voice had such a heavy New York accent that it was a parody of a New York accent. It was the voice you would expect to hear from a city construction worker if all you had to go on were stereotypes. He looked like that, too. A stereotype, with his dusty jeans and orange vest over a flannel shirt and the tattoo on his arm that didn't look like anything in particular. Malcolm finally held up his hands and came back to the fence, ducking underneath the loose part. The workman watched him go, kept watching until we walked past one of the empty storefronts. And then when I looked back, I could see them returning to their original position in front of the backhoe. Were they even doing anything? Zoe tried to pass the whole thing off as normal, but she knew it wasn't. I could hear it in her voice. So what did they say? Nothing. Malcolm kept looking over his shoulder. I mean, 
He said I couldn't have a camera in there, and if I wanted to take any photos, I'd have to talk to the Union. I don't even know what that means. What Union? I didn't see a company name, or... He shook his head and was quiet on the bus back to campus. None of us said much of anything. That was the last time we went out looking for sites to photograph, and we started falling out of touch not long after as the semester kicked into high gear. I hadn't thought about the Shenley Park site again until I met up with Zoe in the coffee shop. I was about halfway through my cold coffee because it cost six bucks and I wasn't letting it go to waste. So, did you guys ever finish the project? No. I stuck with it for the rest of the semester, but it was just making me uneasy, so I switched my focus. I kind of bailed on Malcolm, actually, which I felt bad about, but he was getting obsessive about it. Z was looking over her shoulder every other minute or so now. Had she been doing that the whole time? I hadn't noticed. We still met up after class, went to the movies or whatever, but he was never around on the weekends. He was always out looking for abandoned buildings or dead shopping malls. It was my idea, but it wasn't my project anymore. He was still working on it after we graduated. Jesus. After he went missing, I went to his apartment. I don't know why. I hadn't talked to him in over a year. I told his mom I was just picking up some stuff I'd left with him and and she gave me her spare key, but I guess I just wanted to see if he'd left anything behind that would clue me in on where he'd gone. And did you find anything? I barely registered the people sitting around us, and I was acutely aware that the place had the AC cranked way too high. She set her bag on the table and took something out of it. A digital video camera and about a dozen DV tapes, labeled by date. Most of these are just Malcolm walking around the city. Downtown, Oakland, Southside, just filming places he'd come back and photograph later. I want you to watch this one, though. She almost pushed the camera into my hands. At first, the video was nothing unusual. Just Malcolm filming around downtown Pittsburgh, pointing the camera up at some construction happening on one of the bridges. After about ten seconds, it cut to a night shoot. It was raining, but the DV camera was a waterproof model, so it didn't amount to much more than a sort of white noise in the background. The camera turned around to face Malcolm, pressed against a familiar empty storefront. Rain dripped from his face and hair. They're still there. There aren't any lights, but they're still there. Gonna get a closer look. The camera turned back around, and then he was running forward toward the chain-link fence. He ducked behind one of the jersey barriers in front of the site, pointing the camera inward. In the rain and the dark, the scaffolding didn't look like it served any purpose. It was just a tangle of pipes and planks. There were none of the floodlights you expect during nighttime construction, but enough light from the nearby street lamps penetrated the shadows of the empty lot to render visible a half-circle of figures standing in front of something blocky and yellow. Maybe a steamroller or a bulldozer. I couldn't tell. Something about the shape was wrong. The men just stood there, rain pattering on their hard hats. The one on the end held up an orange sign that said nothing, just a solid orange square, and he gestured as if directing traffic. They looked up, all of them, and Malcolm took off running. 
Where did you find this? In his apartment? My mouth was dry. You know where I found it? There wasn't anything else there. The stores on either side are gone now, too. She took the camera back and rewound a few seconds, then paused the image and turned it back to me, playing it forward one frame at a time. She zoomed in as far as it would go. What does that look like, Chris? Z, this is some crappy DV footage taken at night in the rain. It's pixelated and he was in motion and... There are a hundred different things it could be. It looks like their faces are blurred. That's all. It was a lie. I leaned back in my seat. It looks like they don't have faces. There were boxes of photos in his apartment. I just told his mom they were mine. Some of these are as far out as Ohio and West Virginia. She took a stack of black and white photos from her bag, and I looked through them, one after another. I wanted to get up. I wanted to just... go. But she turned her phone toward me and opened her photo album. She'd taken the shots in broad daylight. I didn't recognize the location. I took these at some abandoned strip mall between McKee's Rocks and Esplin where Malcolm had been shooting about a year ago. He pinned up photos of this place all over his wall. The place looked desolate, abandoned for years and left to molder. A chain link fence had been set up along one side of the parking lot and I could see about ten workmen standing by an old video store. Most of them were turned away from the camera. All but one. Who is that? I squinted. The shot wasn't great. Zoe had zoomed in far enough that the details of the face were blurry and I couldn't see the face under the man's hard hat. But the build was familiar, and the facial hair. I stood up. I think I knocked my chair over in the process. Z didn't even call after me as I ran outside and threw up cold cafe mocha on the sidewalk, which made it worse. I left her there, alone, and I never saw her again. I still have her number, but I haven't called her since then. I've almost done it a dozen times in the years since that meeting, but then I put the phone back in my pocket and try to push her from my mind. I'm afraid that if I call, she won't answer. I still don't know why she wanted to meet with me, why she wanted me to see those photos. Maybe Malcolm was just obsessive, and in her need to make sense of his disappearance, Zoe had been pulled into that delusion. Maybe I had narrowly avoided being pulled down with her. But then why do I have this guilt? I don't believe for a second that Malcolm had just gone off the grid overnight and taken up a job in construction out in McKee's Rocks. And I've been noticing things recently that I would have otherwise walked by without a second glance. You know those spray paint marks on the streets and sidewalks around construction sites? My friend's uncle tells me they're color-coded to mark underground pipes and maintenance lines. Green for sewage, blue for drinking water, and so on. Sometimes I see markings that can't possibly have any meaning. I think I remember some of them from the brief look I'd taken at Malcolm's photos a few years ago. I've seen a wavy pink line spray-painted on the sidewalk, with a circle at one end and a square at the other. I've seen a white square filled with random numbers, some painted in reverse, on a desolate stretch of fenced-in Allegheny River shoreline. I don't think I'm given to paranoia. 
I have a stable job and a happy family life, all things considered. Sometimes, when I can't sleep at night, I still think about those workmen who whistled and laughed in exactly the same way. I think about how I couldn't see even the hint of a face on any of them from a distance. Mostly, I think of mimicry and of camouflage, of caterpillars eating away at leaves, their coloration blending in with their surroundings so nothing will notice them unless they're really looking. I wonder if I'm not crazy, if I'm right about what I've seen. What would such a thing become once it has eaten enough? I should have moved past all of this, and I meant to. I really did. But my daughter has been playing at the end of the street with her friends, and there's absolutely nothing unusual about it, except that I can't remember what used to be there, if anything used to be there at all. And I hope that it's only an empty lot. Everyone likes the familiar things in life, the comforting routine and seeing faces we know all too well. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jonah Tennant, we meet Harrison, who is unsettled from his routine because of a familiar face he keeps seeing. I say familiar because it's someone who looks just like him. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett and Kyle Akers, so you can chalk this up to something bizarre, or you can accept that it's just one of those things that happen in small-town America. The man wearing my face was sitting at the bus stop bench, reading a book. I live in the Midwest United States, in an in-between town. I moved here about five years back, which makes me one of the few people to move in and not out in the last decade. We're pretty small, too small for most chain restaurants. The kind of town where you got your McDonald's and all, but no Applebee's. But we're big enough that you don't really know the people around you so well. The girl at the counter of the coffee place knows my name and my usual order, and not much else. We're too out of the way to be a pit-stop town on the way to the nearest city, but the county buses run through because people need to get to work. Was that too much detail about the local food scene? I don't know. I think it's important. I want you to understand. Anyway, I was at the coffee place when I saw him. I work at an auto repair shop a bit out of town, and I'm an insomniac, so on my lunch break I get a coffee just about every day so I can make it to the end of my shift. Jake teases me about it. I'm kind of a big, grimy dude, and I get the girliest drinks. Sue me for having a sweet tooth. So I'm standing by the window, waiting on my order. At first, I didn't think anything, really, beyond just, oh, that's a new face. 
but my eyes linger, and I get that prickly sensation all over, like my brain twigging me that something's wrong. I only ever felt it so strong a couple times before in my life. Once, when I was out deer hunting with my dad and we saw a coyote, which we realized in a minute was rabid, come limping up towards us. The other was at trade school, and I saw some fuckhead posted up by my truck and just knew he was waiting for me. The first thing I could recognize was the haircut. Then height, the general shape of his face. He was at a distance and hard to make out, and I might not have even noticed if my subconscious hadn't hooked him. I heard someone say once that you've never seen your face, just pictures and reflections. But I have seen it, I guess. It was sort of like the first time you see a video of yourself, distorted compared to what you see in the mirror. The barista broke my attention to give me my coffee, and I forgot him for about a minute before I walked out to get to my truck. I was just across the street from him, and I looked at him, and fuck, those were my eyes. He even dressed like me. Not like he was in the exact same clothes, but the kind of nondescript thing that I'd usually wear. Flannel over denim, work boots. His clothes were cleaner than mine usually looked. By this point, I was full-on staring, coffee hot in my hand. And he looked up, made eye contact. He smiled just a bit. He waved, awkwardly. His smile went to his eyes like a really earnest smile that somehow made my stomach seize up. Just like that, he went back to his book. Coming out of this, I was woozy, about to stumble every step back to the truck. I never locked the doors, but I did now. It sounds fucking ridiculous in hindsight, but it's hard to explain how it felt to see him, practically like I was leaving my own body. My skin was clammy and a little numb. To my credit... As much of a baby as I was, I pushed through the rest of the day like normal, had my coffee, went back from my lunch break. Somebody in town's brakes were wearing thin. Somebody else had junked up their transmission. Ordinary day. The whole time, though, in the back of my head, I was still there on the sidewalk, staring at the guy with my face. I slept worse than usual that night. I've had sleeping problems since I was a kid doctors said it was a routines thing. Any big change from my normal day, I can barely get a wink in. When Jake first moved in, I got so ornery from the sleep deprivation that we ended up fighting just about every day until I started sleeping on the couch. I stayed up that whole night just staring at the computer. I'd gone on some childish Google rabbit hole on doppelgangers and found nothing that seemed helpful. And at some point I stopped reading and my eyes just glazed over and it was morning. First half of my shift was hell until I hit my second wind. I went to the coffee shop, and the dizziness started to set in on the drive over. I know I should blame the fact that I was running on empty, but I still can't help thinking maybe it was because of him. He was there in the same spot when I pulled up. I wouldn't look directly at him, just rushed through to get into the store. Even about ten yards off, he was like a physical presence, like he might as well have been right up in my ear. I could feel his breaths, slow and even, puffing on the back of my neck. I shook the entire time I was getting my drink. Coffee Girl seemed a bit nervy, too. She dropped my change on the counter and didn't smile at me, which just made me more unsettled. She was normally really perky. Even if it was just fake customer service bullshit, 
Missing it made the atmosphere all that much more alien. When things get bad, I'm the kind of guy who just fades out into his own head. It's a skill. Like a bad one, obviously, but a well-fucking-practiced skill. I let myself recede back into my skull, waiting for my drink. Thought about the work I had to get to at the shop. Sleep deprivation made zoning out even easier. Up until I left the shop, that is. I didn't even look at him. Maybe it was because I was moving on autopilot and so deep in my nothing place. But I was absolutely punched with sensation as I got up to the outdoor bistro seating. The feeling of paper against my fingertips as I turned a page. A foggy half-image of black text on creamy white. I full-body rocked to a stop and caught myself. Coffee spilled on my hand. It was boiling hot and I could barely feel it. There he was, reading his fucking book without a care in the world, smiling with my mouth. He had a shadow of stubble. I hadn't shaved the night before. My first thought was that it felt like he'd tried to rip the soul out of my body. I couldn't move. I had to know what was wrong with him, or wrong with me. I sat down and didn't take a sip of my coffee, just stared. He didn't feel me looking at him today, or he pretended not to, but at least when I watched him, I didn't get any more of whatever the fuck that had been. The longer I looked, it was weird. I thought I could see things around him, but not really see them. It was this subtle haze, like heat shimmer, all around him, and as I looked, I could almost see it forming this membrane, stretching out in every direction, this clear web. A thick fucking tendril of it stretched between me and him, almost present and iridescent and real the harder I stared. If I had the balls, I could have reached out and touched it. After a little while, I realized that other people were starting to notice him. They'd stop, double-take, then stand there gawking at him. It seemed weird at first, until I realized, of course, they'd be freaked out. I was sitting right there, across the street. I mean, you'd be startled to see two of your neighbor one day, right? Even comforting myself that way, it didn't seem quite right. Like, shit, they didn't know me that well. I could have had a twin or something. But when he lifted his head up out of his book and smiled at them, gave a little wave to whoever he'd caught staring, they'd act like he'd punched them. From an outsider's perspective, it was somehow, I don't know, embarrassing. I must have looked that dumb yesterday. He sat there for almost an hour with his book, and then the bus came. I could see him pay with change, laugh a bit at something the bus driver said. And then he escaped, down the road and towards civilization. I went and threw up in a garbage can, and I'd broken out in a cold sweat, so I called into work and said I thought I had food poisoning. I got chewed out for taking off, but like... What were they going to do? Bring me in? Have me puke on people's cars? My boss can be such a dick. I texted Jake on the way home and crawled into bed. He waited for me to wake up on my own, even after he got to the house, and he brought a big thing of baked mac and cheese into bed with him for us to share. Homemade, not that Velveeta shit. God, I love him so much. You feeling better now, Ringo? My parents named me Harrison, after the Beatle. He calls me Ringo when he thinks he's being cute. Yeah, I am. 
This is what happens when you stay up all night online reading scary stories or whatever. I stay up all night all the time and never throw up over it. Well, that's because you must be getting old. Your elderly body isn't taking kindly to how you treat it no more. I pinched him on the arm. We chatted about other things. God knows what. He can talk for hours without me having to say a word. It's nice. I'm pretty much quiet and recalcitrant by nature, and so was my dad. It's nice having someone who can make you laugh and feel like a human being. But he said something after we'd flicked on the news that made me sick all over again. Oh, and I heard the craziest shit from Susie today when she came into the office. I only just barely heard her the first time. She was up at the nurse's station, you know, and I'm trying to read some kid's chart. And I nearly put it down and went over and asked her if she needed to go to a hospital or a fucking fucking psych ward. But I asked nicely later and she said, baby, guess what she said. I was half paying attention at this point, splitting my ears between him and tomorrow's weather report. She's pregnant? He threw back his head and laughed. <laughs> That'd be harder to believe than what she actually said, now that you mention. But she was, like, adamant that some woman was trying to steal her soul. Cold rushed over me, and I muted the weather. She what? Yeah, I didn't think she was religious or anything, but... No. He stopped and looked at me, all bright and concerned. What did she say? Harry, you okay? You've been acting funny all day. Jacob, please. He sighed, kind of frustrated now. (sighs) I don't know. She just said... When she was in town yesterday before her shift, she passed by this woman who tried to rip the soul out of her body. I don't know what it means. It's just Susie being a crackhead. I squeezed the remote and almost broke the damn thing. There were more of them. More doppelganger things. Maybe they were feeling the town out slowly, resident by resident, until they found what they needed. She's not crazy. I know what she means. He squinted at me. This was getting him more agitated. Well, what the fuck does that mean? It dawned on me that I couldn't possibly explain what I'd been seeing without sounding like an insane person to my licensed medical professional spouse. I made a half-assed attempt, mostly vague and avoidant, before I asked him if he'd let me drive him into town before work. He agreed, probably because he was planning on talking me into seeing the clinic. Then maybe he wanted to get a coffee. I don't know. So I brought him there. And the stranger was there, familiar as ever, in his same old spot. The moment I laid eyes on him, face buried in his book... I could feel him dig into me. Jake stiffened up like a corpse by my side. His hand tried to grab for me, but I was already out the door and making a beeline for the man with my face. I barely even waited for traffic. I was so hopped up on being right, on being proven, on knowing I wasn't going crazy. At that point, even against all evidence to the contrary, I was half sure that Jake wouldn't see him at all. The closer I got to the guy... Shoulders up and tight, the stronger the pull was. I put everything I had into staying clear-headed and ignoring the ghost images of words on paper. I almost got hit by a car for my troubles. People were already staring at him, but as I approached, some of their eyes turned onto me, too. I could feel them, like claws and arrows, like the way he pulled at me. 
I stopped a few feet away and squared my shoulders. Hey! He sat up and looked straight at me. The air around him shimmered. It was like a web, all leading back to him like some kind of spider. For a second I could see the cord between me and him, and it was as thick as my wrist, twice what it was yesterday. Harry, right? Looking down at me, he smiled and shook his head. No, son. I think you got me mixed up with someone else. He pointed at the book in my hands. My knuckles had gone white, gripping so tight onto it. Can I see that for a minute? Before I could nod, it was his book. Or shake my head. Hadn't I been in the middle of reading it? My hands were empty. One by my side, the other aimed down in a casual point to the book in the stranger's lap. The next thing I noticed is the air had been pulled right out from my lungs. Breathing in was like breathing fire for that first second, and I grabbed my chest. Before I caught my breath, rocked with dizziness and pain in my chest, I would have sworn I was having a heart attack. <gasps> the fuck? You ought to be more careful, Harrison. You could get real hurt pulling a stunt like that. He sounded sincere. That was the sickest part of it to me at the time. I was so angry, I was shaking with it. Sure, I would swing at him any moment. Don't you dare give me that. He sighed. The whole time, he never got angry or raised his voice. Well, hey, don't shoot the messenger. You're the one going around looking into things that ain't your business, aren't you? Not my business? You come into my fucking town where I live, and you tell me it's not my business? I haven't done anything. Whose face are you wearing, then? He reached up and touched my face, his own face, at the edge of our stubble. I... I don't want any trouble. Well, tell your friend... I don't have friends, Harrison. Not in this town, leastways. He gave me a long, slow blink and looked me up and down. My skin crawled like a ripple tracking with the movement of his gaze. He smiled and spoke with my voice. I'm just passing through. Don't pay me any mind. What the fuck do you- I just try not to think about it. You can't go through your life trying to understand everything that happens to you. His smile all of a sudden got real damn sad. I felt the ache in it. I remembered the times I'd smiled like that. I couldn't think of anything to say to him, and he could tell I was struggling because he lifted his book up like he wanted me to leave him to it. Crime and punishment. I pressed my hand to my chest where the tightness was turning into a proper knot. I'll be gone after tomorrow. He turned his eyes down to the page. I should have told him to get out of town today if he knew what was good for him. Hell, I should have chased him out myself. But I just ripped myself away. The more I walked, I could feel the hooks under my skin pop off and disappear, and the tight feeling started to fade. I got into the car and turned to Jake. Tears were pouring down his face. His hands were clasped over his mouth to catch the sobs, but I'd never seen him cry like that. I started fussing instantly, but he was crying too hard to speak. I asked if he needed to take off the rest of the day, and he nodded. We could pretend he'd picked up a stomach bug from me yesterday. He cried for hours. Just uncontrollable. To this day, he won't tell me exactly what happened to him while I was talking to the stranger. I kind of have an idea. I don't like to think about it. The one thing he did tell me was that the man had his face. That's when I knew. 
I went back the next day as early as I could, and sure enough, the man with our faces was there. The air was thick, like the humidity just before a big storm. He didn't seem to notice. All the nice people whose routines he'd disrupted were stock still, staring at him, and I wanted more than anything to shout for him to get out of there. What the hell kind of a game was he playing? Didn't he know this shit was dangerous? And didn't he care about... But anyway, I couldn't get my voice up over the thick silence sliding down my throat. I wasn't the only one. Nobody was willing to make the first move. Then Jeff, the old man who runs the liquor store, came up behind the stranger with the driver he keeps behind the counter for security. The stranger sat up a little. He knew the old man was behind him, and he didn't even turn around. The metal bulb smacked against his shoulder and keeled him right off the bench. I rolled with the blow. His book fell, and I never saw it again after, because in that moment everything turned into chaos. A little under a dozen people rushed for him. I'm not oversensitive or hysterical or what the fuck ever. I swear on God that I could feel everything. I haven't asked anybody else if they felt it too. Steel-toed boots to the gut... Dirt and asphalt, and nice folks hate in your mouth. I don't know if it's worse if they couldn't or could. It was the kind of shit you only see on the really gritty nature docks, or when you spend a long time sitting still in a deer stand, when all the birds descend on one among them and rip its throat out, or a mama fox bashes her kit to death. It's not malicious, it's a survival instinct, but I've never believed for a second that natural doesn't mean it can't be evil. And he looked up, made eye contact. His eyes were so big and bloodshot and scared. I could feel him pleading inside my head so loud, and I could feel the bruising and breaking like a phantom sensation under my skin. I just stood there. Somebody brought their foot down on the center of his face, and it made this horrible cracking sound. And that was when I finally looked away. That was when I stopped feeling it. There were a few more moments of scuffling before everyone stopped. He'd quit moving, and I think it made everyone realize all of a sudden what they were doing and where. After a while, someone got a big sheet and draped him in it, staining it red everywhere. I don't know what they did with him after they wrapped him up and moved him. The coffee shop owner got the hose he used for the flower boxes in his windows and sprayed down the street until the gore washed away. I'd watched my neighbors murder me. I haven't disguised myself before sharing this. I could have spared the personal details and changed people's names. It'd be very consistent for a cowardly fuck like me. But I think the least I can do for us both, me and him, is to be honest. I'm scared as hell every day. I never stopped thinking about the way his bones cracked and his teeth came out and his skin sloughed away where they'd beaten it to mashed potato. If you hear this, if you're from my town, you know who I am. And I know who you are. And I think you deserve to be a little scared, too. Yesterday, for just a minute, I thought I saw my boss flinch looking at me. He had this look of horror and rage. And when it happened, I knew him inside out. I saw myself, and I looked like him. Maybe sometimes, if you're that scared of seeing your reflection, that's your own fucking fault. 
We hear a lot these days about the workers we all rely on. Frontline workers, those in food service, and in the grocery stores. But let's not forget to be thankful for long-haul truckers. They move the goods we all rely on across the country. And in this tale, shared with us by author Raucus B., we meet one trucker who starts to notice something strange on his route, something that will shake him to his core. I join Jeff Clement and Aaron Lillis in performing this tale. So if you're rolling down the highways and interstates, keep her between the lines. The last thing you want is to go over the edge. Oftentimes, I find myself dozing while driving. Long-haul truckers don't get the thanks they deserve. On top of having a no-bullshit policy for our workload, being tested and tried by traffic, weather, and our rigs themselves, we also never get thanks for doing the incredibly arduous task of driving itself. Now, I assume the average person has no issue with driving. Hell, maybe you enjoy it. I know I did once. The changing scenery and the thrill of the open road is what led me to pick this career path, if you can call it that. I always admired the roaring semi-trucks that would pull up alongside my mother while she drove on the highway, scaring her half to death with their growling engines and huge wheels that dwarfed her little car. My mom is the type of person to ease under the shoulder as a rig passes, so afraid of their size and sheer momentum that she'd rather risk the ditch than be around them. She told me a story once about a girl from our hometown. A girl our family knew was working at the golf course just outside of town and would often bike alongside the highway to and from work. One particularly windy and bleak day as she was riding her bike to work, a semi passed her and the sudden displacement of the wind sucked her into the road and she was hit by another vehicle. She died only meters from where she would have exited the highway onto the golf course. <sighs> My mother would then sigh, tapping her cigarette into a bulky glass ashtray. A pink cross was erected in the bend on the highway where the girl died, with bright reflectors on either end of the arms of the cross. This, of course, provided the evidence my mother needed to validate her story. The reflectors looked like a set of eyes watching you, purposefully done by the family in the hopes that it would slow traffic on the highway down around the area. Those eyes used to haunt me, back before I knew the true terror of what the roads can be like. A kitschy pink cross was reason enough for my mother to not let me ride my bike out of the residential area around our home. I think maybe my latent disdain for the rule led me down the trucking path. Besides having no future, my parents couldn't afford to send me to school, and Dad having spent the latter half of my teen years insisting that owing the government for student loans was what idiots do after high school. I made excellent grades. Nowadays, I would probably have qualified for a scholarship, but Dad wasn't going to pony up any more money for me. And by that point, Mom was numb to everything that wasn't daytime television and cigarettes. 
Well, three years of working at Walmart later and I'd had enough. I needed something more. A career, if you will. My then-girlfriend had decided to up and split, saying I was wasting both of our lives, that she didn't want to date a cashier for the rest of her life. She was right, too. I'd never climb any sort of corporate ladder just working at a box retailer, and the ambitious part of me craved opportunity, something that allowed me more freedom than the checkout counters at Wally World ever did. Then one day, after the breakup while helping a driver finish his delivery paperwork while he unloaded his trailer, it dawned on me. Freedom. Romance. Adventure. That's what the life of a trucker sounded like. A different spot to sleep under the stars every night and a boatload of me time, provided you weren't stuck driving shift. Getting my license wasn't that hard. I was already a graduated class 5 driver. For those of you outside of Canada, that just means I had my big boy license. So getting my class 1 was just a matter of studying and training. I had to do my training without company help, but after a year of saving and lots of classroom work, I was finally the proud holder of a brand new commercial trucking license. That was years ago now. And as I stifle a yawn, I can honestly say that the novelty has worn off. I work alone, thankfully, but the company I work for is small. We only have a few routes, and the drivers who are on a route are on that route. We rarely switch unless there's an emergency. Instead of sharing a cab, we each have our own rigs, so by the time I'm coming back from my drop-off point, Kevin, the other driver on the route, is on his way with the next load. And we usually pass each other along the way, tossing casual insults to each other on our CB. A few times we've been called out for our rank behavior, but such is life on the road. The cab can be lonely, but it sure beats the hell out of having to listen, smell, and breathe with Kevin for days at a time while hauling chocolate bars and toilet paper. I prefer solitude. What I don't like is monotony. I hate my fixed route, which winds through the mountains begrudgingly. It had been beautiful, sure. The first few years were just stunning. Every new shift an opportunity to see something new. Wildlife, the way the clouds and mist clings to the curves and cliffs of the mountains and their valleys, raging waters from excessive spring melt-off, rock slides... I've seen a lot of things since I started driving, but it's lost its magic after the years. The same road over and over and over again. I give my head a little shake as I shift down, knocking the sleep from my head. The road is widening and lampposts cast glow over the highway, breaking up the miles of headlight-illuminated darkness I'd just come from. There's a way station coming up, and the last thing I want is to be pulled in. I'm confident I'm not overweight, but it's an annoyance I don't necessarily want, as tired as I am. I want to get my load to the drop-off and catch a few hours of sleep. If I'm lucky, I'll get there before the bay even opens, and I'll be able to park and sleep in the loading bay undisturbed. The lights in the way station are on but the flashing lights, which would indicate that it's necessary for me to slow down and drive through, 
or not, and I'm free to keep going. I shake my head, smiling, as I roll down my window, reaching for my smokes at the same time. It's late, close to three in the morning, and the roads are empty. As the glow from the way station fades into the darkness, I light my cigarette and flick the satellite radio on to my favorite classic rock station. The wind rushing into the cab is crisp night air, and my god, is it refreshing. Maybe I'm not bored of everything. It's good to breathe clean air, and that's something them desk jockeys will never have. It's about 20 kilometers later when I realize that the edges of the road look sharper than usual. Like someone took a graphite pencil and made deliberate jagged edges in the ditch. The road met the grass bordering the ditch like it should, but then there were lines like shards of broken glass that dropped into the darkness. Oh, you're overtired and imagining things. Once you get a little shut-eye, things will clear up. I almost convinced myself of it, too. The sleep building in the corners of my eyes is evidence that my eyes are just playing tricks. However, as I continue down the road, the same sharpness begins to creep into the surrounding forest. It's dark, so it's not like I can see for miles. But that's just it. My headlights are illuminating vast swaths of nothing. Where I know there should be trees, there's now empty, pitch-black space. Like a mirage that shimmered darkness instead of heat, moving it in fluid waves in the atmosphere. What the fuck? I shift down my rig and begin to slow. The machine growls its complaints as if protesting a sudden change in pace. She knows the route as well as I do. The road stretches out in front of me, undisturbed. But as I continue at my slower pace, a litany of glowing eyes appear in my headlights. A parade of deer and rams are appearing from the ditches and standing on the asphalt, snuffing at the edges and pacing nervously. More than once, I have to almost slow to a stop as they panicked at the sight of the rig, not realizing my own apprehension sealed in the cab as I am. The radio starts to go out next, sputtering intermittently until I decide to turn it off completely to better focus on the road. I flick my brights on and leave them on to help me see further down the road as I traverse deeper into the darkness. As my anxiety increases, I catch the red light of my radio out of the corner of my eye and decide to try the CB to see if there's anyone ahead of me who can tell me how long this goes on for. Or better yet, if they even see it. Decker license Q47 calling in on Route 5 between Blue River and Vavenby. I got, uh... I got dark patches on the edge of the road and animals are spooked all over the place. I'm seeing some weird shit. Is anyone else out here seeing this? Over. The radio stays completely silent. No surprise, it's late and usually the only ones on the road this time are truckers who have somewhere to be. The small homes along the route would all be dark by this time. Still, I had to hope that someone might 
hear me. The radio clicks on a few times and goes silent again, starting to panic. And I reach for another cigarette, lighting it frantically while my eyes dart between the flame and the road. Part of me doesn't trust my headlights. Suddenly a light in my side mirror catches my eyes. A vehicle is approaching from behind and he's going fast. The hell is he doing? I curse and throw on my hazards, hoping to scare the brick. Does he not see the edging darkness? The vehicle hasn't slowed down, even though I'm virtually stopped in the middle of the road and my blinking trailer lights are giving off a wide radius of something's fucked up but light. But the vehicle, a little red Prius, just blasts past me. I think about blasting my horn, but I don't. Instead, I follow it with my eyes as it moves beyond the range of my high beams and disappears into the darkness ahead. If I'm right, it's kind of hard to navigate without any surroundings for reference, and the stretch of road we're at should be pretty straight for a while here. I should be able to see the car for a good while before it disappears into another valley or around a bend in the road to accommodate a mountain base. I'm just beginning to feel a little safer when I see the taillights of the car disappear. That's not unusual. I could have misjudged the distance. But when they disappeared, I saw them swerve briefly before lifting up and disappearing. As if the car had gone over an edge. Shit. I shift the rig into gear, moving it as rapidly as I feel comfortable with. With an ass as big and heavy as mine right now, stuffed greedily with packaged beef jerky and bags of chips, I'm not taking any chances with my braking distance. At a rapid pace, I coax the vehicle forward, stressing and squinting my eyes to try and see as far ahead of my headlights as I'm able. I'm used to hammering these roads at 20 kilometers over the speed limit, usually. But here I am acting like a scared kid. Or worse, like my mother. I allow myself the amusing thought, eager to be rid of the mind-numbing terror coursing through my veins. A momentary reprieve is still a reprieve. A couple minutes later, still nowhere near, I hope, where I'd seen the Prius and its passengers go tits up, I start to notice a feature in the otherwise infinite black of the edge. There are lights, faint and distant, candles lit miles and miles away. They're static and beautiful, each one's twinkling brilliance denoting an unexplored world of possibilities. I realize what it is when I see the brilliant streak of white splashed across the sky, creating a cloud of dust blown by a cosmic child. I am driving on a bridge that extends into the middle of the universe. The entire Earth, the crust, the mantle, the outer core, the inner core, the trees, ducks, birds, deer, bears, buildings, roads, lakes, oceans, all of it, has blipped out of existence. And now it's just me and the road into the universe. About 20 feet from the edge of the world, I ease the rig to a stop. Grabbing my pack of cigarettes and my lighter, I open the door and step down into the cab. 
hyperventilating, my hands shaking feverishly as I fumble flicking the lighter to light the smoke I pulled from the pack. I approach the edge, crouched down, trying to spread my weight across the road as I walk, acutely aware of the possibility that there is nothing but empty space beneath the thin layer of asphalt I am now walking across, a prospect that fills me with dread. I feel my bowels drop and rumble dangerously, and I begin to sweat. When I reach the jagged edge of the pavement, I drop to my hands and knees, peering over the edge slowly, ready to pull back at any second should the need arise. There is nothing but infinite space beyond the edge, as I figured. Far, far in the distance, I see a spinning light and realize in horror that it's the Prius tumbling its way through infinity. This has to be a fucking joke. (laughs) I laugh out loud and sit back on my ass in the middle of the road, bathed in the beams from my headlights. My silhouette stretches out before me, disappearing off over the edge, a part of me joining the car in its forlorn journey through the stars. There's no way this could be happening. I jump as there comes a sound of twisting metal and shrieking mechanical parts, followed by a deafening boom. My cigarette drops from my mouth as I get back onto my belly and crawl myself forward until I can see over the edge of the road again. The explosion is much louder than it should have been, considering the car had fallen into the abyss long before I'd reached it and its headlights were far off in the darkness when I'd seen them. Sure enough, I can see debris scattered into the void, floating free of the frame of the Prius, which was now on fire. As I stare at the wreck, grasping at the edges of my own mind to try to maintain any semblance of sanity that remains, something moves. In the infinite blackness, something very real is shifting removing any vestige of a veil on the question of are we alone in the universe. If the moving thing is any indication, it's not a good one. Slowly, a massive eye begins to appear as the enormous lid that covers it rolls back to the horizon as far as I can see. The eye itself extends beyond the precipice of what I would consider possible, even in the face of infinity. It's a dark, jaundiced yellow and surprisingly human. The blood vessels leading into the iris are swollen and red, irritated as if the thing is allergic. And then it hits me. The Prius. It had exploded after hitting this thing in the eye. Okay, nope. Not today. I surprise myself with my own calm mannerisms and start pushing myself away from the edge in a mad but controlled scramble to get back to my rig. Freedom, romance, and adventure can suck a fat one right about now. This is quite possibly the biggest scientific discovery in history and I am not ready to die for it. No way, no how. Not my circus and it's definitely not my monkeys. Just as I'm pushing myself onto my hands and knees, the thing emits a bass-filled howl. The force 
force of it is so strong that my rig shakes on the road, and a few feet of the edge tumble off into the abyss as I'm forced back onto my stomach from the blast, covering my ears with my hands and taking the brunt of my fall on my elbows. The road is disintegrating in front of me with more and more pieces falling off into the nothing, revealing more of the jaundiced eye as it collapses. The skin of this thing is the universe. The stars and constellations painted across its hide are in a mirror of our own night sky. I realize with shocking clarity, I once more try to stand. I know the words came out of my mouth, but the noise from the thing is so loud that I can't hear it, even in my own head. Instead of trying to stand, I push myself away from the edge, scraping the fat of my stomach against the asphalt. Inching like a maggot, I crawl away from it as fast as I can, careful not to alert the beast to my retreat by standing. I'm at the side of my truck, nearest to my cab door, carefully raising myself to a knee, ready to hit the deck if the thing screams again. Instead, I'm greeted with the blinding glare of a set of headlights swerving from behind my trailer. I woke up in the hospital two days ago. I still don't remember what happened after I saw the headlights. And from the state of my body, I don't want to. There's been a parade of media personnel. Police officers, nurses, doctors, specialists, analysts, since I woke up. Everyone champing at the bit for what happened. Though none of them are willing to tell me why it's so important. The only clue I have was from a journalist who asked me if I knew about the disappearances on Route 5. She asked how I felt about being the only person found in the affected zone. She was shut up immediately by a police escort. It's an act of investigation, being his excuse when I questioned him later. Horse shit. The guy in here now, he's different. Real men in black vibe coming off of him. His suit being that slightly blacker than black material that screams importance. The door to my room has been shut, and I can see two gentlemen, dressed the same as the man here now, outside, guarding it like the Secret Service. He's asking me what happened. That's what they always ask, but they don't like my answer. The last thing I remember is putting my arms up against the lights, then blackness. Noise like the thing howling. Being lifted onto a gurney, maybe? Beeping... More silence, more blackness. I finish with a sigh. The doctors say my injuries are in fact consistent with being struck by a vehicle traveling at high speeds. There were, as the local police have said, indications that a car did swerve suddenly. Deep colored gashes penetrated the asphalt, leaving their distinctive smear, but they disappeared. Not like the vehicle had righted itself, mind you like it just didn't exist. Like it didn't happen. Hell, one officer even tried to claim that the marks may have been from a previous accident. 
Okay, Mr. Murphy, we understand your confusion and your irritation. The man in the suit leans forward in the chair nearest my bedside, crossing his fingers beneath his nose. We just need to try to understand exactly what you're saying. You wake up in the hospital and start babbling about the cosmos, the infinite, and how it's all the skin of a great beast? A beast you said swallowed up at least two cars, one of which hit you. The beast didn't swallow the cars, the edge did. I ignore his eye rolling. You understand that we're just trying to help you, but what you're saying doesn't make sense. He's rubbing his hands on his pants. You know, in the way you do when you want to leave. That's what they all do. Everyone wants to hear the story. But it makes them uncomfortable. They don't want to believe what I'm telling them, so they don't. There's a flicker of primal horror in their eyes, though. I know it when I see it, because I've seen it before in my own rearview mirror. Listen, Mr... Agent. We have agents in Canada? Agent. I I get it, okay? But you have to believe me. That thing is out there. Our entire world is probably resting on the tip of its goddamn nose. And we're just not seeing it. Let me speak to someone from the CSA, or, or even NASA. I'll take NASA. They're not my cup of tea, but any port in the storm. It is the stars. It is the Milky Way. It's all of it. Black holes are probably nothing more than its nostrils. You have no idea the immensity. The agent stands to leave, gesturing to the doctors who've been in the room the whole time. They nod, approaching me with the steely resolve they save for when they decide to sedate me. Listen to me. Plenty of cultures believe in the concept of a world turtle, okay? I'm rambling maniacally, but I I don't care. He has to know. They they talk about it on the radio, coast-to-coast AM, you know? It's the belief that our world rests on the back of a giant turtle. Uh, Sometimes it's an elephant. Who, Who cares? Just... Where's it going to happen next? People have to know. They have to know before they go over the edge. Before they wake it up again, Agent. I cry as he's opening the door. How many people are missing on Route 5? How many people never made it home? How many campers, hikers, drivers, bikers? How many? How many? My words are beginning to slur, and I feel the sedative beginning to work through my system. The agent is standing in the doorway, his eyes widening with horror, and a reluctant understanding. 87. In our final tale, 
We meet Dan and Katie, who are refurbishing their new house. And after a few months of settling in, Dan notices some small changes happening to the house. And much to Dan's annoyance and frustration, Katie claims the changes have always been like that. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Mary Murphy, Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, and Mick Wingert. So you can choose to trust your memory and believe your own eyes. Just make sure you're not seeing by gaslight. It all started with a wall plate. They had those horrible, awful, brassy kind that come default in every single cookie-cutter house contractors slapped together in the 90s. Well, the second day after my wife and I moved into our house, I went to Lowe's and I bought five contractor packs of 10 stainless steel plates to replace every damned outlet and light switch cover except that one. The packs had gotten me 50, leaving me one short. It was probably the most frustrated I'd ever been up to that point standing there by the back door in our walkout basement with a screwdriver and a pile of empty boxes. My wife patted me on the shoulder, chuckled at me, and headed up the stairs. I might have sworn at my reflection in the glinty, garish yellow while I was at it, but there was no one there to bear witness to my adult temper tantrum, so I'll never admit it. It became something of a running joke, Every single time I went to a hardware store, I'd forget to buy one without fail. The next time I'd go into the basement, I'd see it practically screaming at me from the wall, and it'd send my eyelids slamming shut in frustration. That's all it was. An endless supply of low-level annoyance. Something to tick up my blood pressure just enough to irk me for a moment or two, but minor enough to brush off and forget the second I walked out of the room. This went on for months became tethered in our relationship lexicon. We need eggs. Better put it on the grocery list so it doesn't become another light switch plate. It was an inside joke. Honestly, I think that's why I didn't care so much about remembering. The ribbing Katie gave me was always worth the moment of irritation. Her smile could knock me out of most of my moods. That's why that night knocked me flat on my ass. I got home from work, ate some dinner with Katie while she read and I messed around on my phone, mowed the lawn, and headed downstairs to watch some TV. I froze on the bottom step, staring at the back door. It was even more noticeable than it had ever been because now it was silver. Beautiful, modern, stainless steel. I ran up the stairs, found Katie in the kitchen, and I kissed her so hard that I dipped her back just like I had in our <laughs> wedding days after our I do's. It wasn't like we were blushing virgins, but I wasn't exactly the random acts of passion type. So she gave me the whoa, whoa, whoa there kind of laugh with her hand on my chest once I'd righted her again. <laughs> what was that for? Her smile still stretched her cheeks wide. Her hand was warm as it moved up the side of my neck. I covered her own hand with my own, thumb rubbing over the scar on the back of it, the one that she'd gotten after a particularly nasty fight with a vine and chain-link fence. I snuck in for another kiss. For finally saving me from myself. 
Thank you for replacing it. Replacing what? I rolled my eyes and took a half step back, knowing exactly what she was trying to do. I kept my eyes on her and kept her hand in mine, though, pulling it up to press my lips to my favorite freckle, the one right below her wedding ring. The wall plate. She gave me a look like I was nuts, and normally I would have played along. Normally she would have been giving me a hard time, but right now, she wasn't. I dropped her hand. She pulled out of my arms. What are you talking about? The one by the back door. The hideous one that I've been forgetting to replace since we moved in? She went back to emptying the dishwasher, face hidden from sight. You replaced all of them the day after we moved in. I remember because you made a huge production out of it, like their very existence offended you and... Well, they did. And I didn't replace all of them. I replaced all but one. Remember? I was one short. She gave me that look again, but now she looked annoyed with me too. Katie, you gave me shit about this literally two days ago. I don't know what you're trying to do right now, but you're starting to piss me off. She shoved some plates in the cabinet with a loud clang. I haven't heard or said or even thought a thing about the stupid covers since that day. I don't know why you're bringing it up now, but- Katie, are you being fucking serious right now? I rounded on her. I grabbed her hand, pulling her to me and shaking my head. My heart was pounding in my neck as I tried to get her to look me in the eye. Why are you messing with me? This isn't funny. No, it isn't. She pulled out of my grasp once more and shut the dishwasher. I'm going to bed. It's 7.30. And yet here we are. She threw up her hands as she walked out of the room and disappeared from sight. The sound of the door slamming down the hall shoved my stomach up into my throat. I went downstairs, turned on all the lights, and stood at the bottom of the stairs, staring down the light switch in question. I looked at it until it felt foreign under my intense stare, as if I'd unraveled in the same way you can make a word look wrong if you read it too many times. Only then did I feel ready to go right up to the thing. The closer I got, the harder it became to catch a decent breath. The details, the nuances, they got more noticeable with each foot that passed, and by the time I reached it, my hands were trembling. With a quick swipe, my index finger ghosted across the top and came away gray. Dust. Lots of it. Beneath the layer of grime was a smear of beige. The same beige I'd painted the room in the month after we moved in. To replace the sage green half of the rooms in the house had been slathered with. The same smear I'd left on the brass plate just to spite it. It was there, clear as day, painted across the top with the carelessness of someone who couldn't give two shits whether or not something happened to what they were painting around. I hated the thing, so I hadn't cared. I hadn't even taped it off. But now its mark was left on silver. Beautiful, innocuous, pleasing to the eye, silver, marred by the beige that I'd happily chosen mere months ago. Katie had to be messing with me. There was just no way around it. Maybe I'd done something stupid, some offense that I'd been too dense to even notice. That alone could earn me a rightful messing with. I would have been annoyed with me too for something like that. 
she hadn't been joking. She had tells, little quirks of her lips and glances at the wall. To be fair, though, those were things she did when she was playing for fun, when it didn't matter if I knew or not. But up in the kitchen, she looked angry at me, not for something I'd done before, but for the very suggestion that she'd replaced the cover. And honestly, why would she? She'd made it clear in the months that we lived in our house that she didn't care one bit about how the thing looked. It was in the basement by the back door. No one ever went down there but us, so why did it matter? I think she liked having something to tease me about. So why would she change it? I let it lie for a few days, knowing better than to push my luck and knowing Katie better than to poke at a spot that had clearly stung in the first place. She didn't bring it up either, but she also didn't go into the basement. As far as I knew, she hadn't gone down there since I'd given her my big thank you. I was changing a light bulb over the basement TV when I heard Katie coming down the stairs. So are we going to talk about the other night or not? She had her arms across her chest, eyebrows already halfway to her hairline. I was in for it. The cover? I stepped off the coffee table I'd hauled over to help me complete the job. Yeah, the cover. What else would I be talking about? She looked at me for a moment before her forehead relaxed and she leaned against the wall. I just don't get why you'd say that. I was happy that it was replaced, that's all. You replaced it six months ago. You replaced it yourself. You dragged me down the stairs to show me it was gone. I replaced all of them, but that one. I pointed at it, the traitorous metal plate sitting smug and dusty on the wall. Then why not just go buy another one, Dan? She looked at the ceiling and huffed. Jesus Christ, why am I even doing this with you? I'm not trying to play your game, and I don't know why you're messing with me. It's not funny, and I don't know why you think it is. She took two steps up the stairs before turning and looked at me, hands still on the railing. You can sleep in the guest room until you stop thinking it's funny. Then she was gone. I didn't bother watching her leave. I like the guest room better than our own anyway. It went on for a few more days, us mostly dancing around each other like shy partners in a square dance. It wasn't like us to do this. We never fought for this long. I tried to open up the chain of communication a few times, but she just looked at me, asked if I was done messing with her head, and would then leave when I didn't immediately answer. But I was not about to apologize or admit to something I wasn't doing, something I hadn't done. It was just a light switch cover. But it had inflated and filled every corner, every nook in our entire home. On the third night, she came in and sat on the edge of the guest room's bed where I was playing a game on my phone while I waited to get tired. Her fingers traced the patterns on the quilt draped over me. Are you still saying that you're not messing with me? I never replaced that one, Katie. I never did. The weight of my day settled over me and I just wanted to sleep. I'm tired, so... Dan, 
Are you feeling okay? Her fingers brushed through my hair and my eyes fell shut. I wanted to drift off to the rhythmic touch, but her next words were a bucket of ice water straight to the chest. Maybe we should go to a doctor. Get things checked out. What? Like a shrink? I scooted back on the bed so her hand fell from my hair to the sheets. She let it linger for a moment before bringing it back to the safety of her own lap. I reached for it despite myself, thumb grazing over the ring I'd put on her finger just a few years ago. I stared at the single dimple that dipped into her right cheek, the way her blue eyes cut through the dim of the room, that piece of hair that always flipped out when the rest flipped under. God, I loved her. The distance between our bodies felt like 12 miles, but I had no idea how to cross it. Yeah, exactly like a shrink. This just... It's not like you, Tan. It's totally out of the blue, and honestly, it's scaring the shit out of me. Let's just go talk to someone. I'll come with you. A shrink over a wall plate. One that you swear you never replaced and I distinctly remember you replacing. Yes. Maybe you're the one who isn't remembering right. Why are you assuming it's me? I honestly hadn't even thought of that until right then. Pettiness pulling it out of the depths of my subconscious. She rolled her eyes. You can't remember where you put your car keys three minutes after you set them down and I'm the one with the questionable memory? That's a little different. I looked at her, scoff forcing its way out of my throat. It's a lot fucking different, actually. It'd be like me telling you one day that it's the Chicago Cats, not the Cubs. Don't you bring the Cubs into this. Katie crossed herself as a smile played across the corner of her lips. You know they're sacred in this house. Only thing that is... I smiled back, letting it fall as I looked at her beautiful face. She was sad, and it was because of me, and the worst part of all was how I felt equal parts guilty and annoyed by her expression. Well, maybe we're both wrong, and we don't even live here. What kind of idiots would buy a house with ugly wall plates anyway? I leaned in to press my forehead against her thigh, feeling myself relax just a little for the first time in days. Can I come to bed now? She nodded, and I followed her out of the room the way I'd been following her for over a decade. Things got a little better after that as we slipped back into whatever version of normalcy we usually found ourselves attempting. She didn't bring up the psychiatrist again, but she very noticeably left a web page for a local one open on her computer one evening. I didn't blame her. She believed she was right, as much as I knew I was. I was cleaning up the garage, shuffling around some things so I could access them easier once fall hit, when I found a stack of empty contractor's boxes of stainless steel wall plates. I'd save them because they were sturdy little boxes, and I was always needing places to throw the kinds of random shit one accumulates during a remodel. You know, nails, screws, Allen wrenches, whatever. I grabbed one off the shelf that looked different from the rest. A bright red starburst with white letters boldly printed on the side. 
I read the label and damn near crumpled the thing in my hands. Ten stainless steel wall plates plus one. Bonus buy. One extra wall plate. No. It was wrong. The box was wrong. It had been ten. Ten covers in five boxes. I needed fifty-one, but I only had fifty. Fifty. There had been fifty total. I took off of the house like a bull fresh out of the holding pen, box half crushed and dropping screws all over the tiled floor. Jesus, what's gotten into you? (laughs) Katie was laughing at me, like usual, where she sat writing lesson plans at the kitchen island. I slammed the box down next to the open English textbook sitting beside her. Ten plus a bonus one? A fucking bonus one? It took her a moment to catch up, her eyes unfocusing from the computer screen to take in the box for a moment. Yeah, it came with an extra. Remember? You were making like you'd won the lottery with such a great deal. She looked back at her computer screen, fingers at the ready. I thought we were done with this. It said ten. The box said ten... And now it says 10 with a bonus one. The box changed. The second the words were out, my stomach sank to my knees the way only embarrassment can accomplish. I felt stupid, but I knew I was right. How do you propose the box changed? Hmm? Decided it needed a new look and went to the box plastic surgeon for an update? My pulse thudded in my ears like a spastic kid with a bouncy ball. I don't know. I don't know, but it's different. It changed. I jabbed a finger at the words that hadn't been there the last time I looked at the box. It changed, just like the cover. And I don't know how, but they changed. And if you could stop looking at me like I'm fucking crazy, that'd be great. Her face didn't soften. She just kept glaring at me until she finally looked back at her screen and continued typing as if I wasn't even there. I don't often feel anything other than love for Katie. But in that moment, I resented her. I resented everything she had done and said since I'd found that cover changed. I didn't talk to her for two days. I went out with an old high school friend, Chris, a few nights later. He was still in his work boots when he sat down beside me at a bar stool, the same bar we'd snuck into as seniors. I slid a bottle of Bud Light toward him at the faded bar top. Ah, you look like, uh, shit. Yeah, well, I feel like shit, so maybe that's got something to do with it. I shrugged, sipping my own beer before letting my forehead rest against the mouth of the bottle. And either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with Katie. And honestly, I don't know which one scares me more. I filled him in over a beer and a half a cardboard boat filled with salted peanuts still in the shell. I don't even know what to say to her now. I cracked open a peanut and shook the insides into the palm of my hand. It feels like something shifted between us. Yeah, trust. Chris shrugged, hoodie almost completely masking the motion. 
You're kind of fucked if that's gone. I guess I am. I tossed the peanuts into my mouth like pills. Weird. I always thought you were allergic to peanuts. So, uh, what are you going to do about Katie? Go to the shrink, like she said? No. Hell no, I'm not doing that. All it's going to do is make both of us look like fucking idiots. I'm just going to let it go. I mean, that's what I have to do, right? Chris pushed his beer across the table. Katie's way out of your league, so I'd do whatever I had to do to keep her happy, but that's just me. Hey, I like to think that we're both somehow out of each other's leagues. Yeah, that uh, doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Chris laughed at me, pushing his ball cap up a bit on his forehead. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around these days. I swallowed the rest of my beer and moved the conversation onto his crew's latest project and the crazy stuff they got up to on site. It was nice to focus on something else for a while before I walked straight back into it again. The house was dark and quiet when I got home. Katie curled up on her side of the bed with her phone next to her pillow. Rain pattered on the roof above us, ceiling fans circling lazily overhead. I took off my jeans and jacket, setting both on the dresser before climbing into bed and wrapping myself around her. How's Chris? She spoke too soon for her to have been asleep when I walked in the room. Yeah, he's Chris. Man, a few words, as always. Starting to think I should take a few pages out of his book. Nah, I like you the way you are. She snuggled into my chest after moving her phone. Even lately? Even always. Let's just move on, okay? I didn't want to move on. I wanted her to believe me. No, I wanted her to know I was right. But I wasn't going to get that. Okay. I shut my eyes and fell asleep to the rhythmic feeling of her breath brushing against my throat. It rained for the next four days, and by noon on the 4th, I was feeling entirely capable of committing murder. Working from home was great most days, but when all I saw was gloom and water dripping from gutters I always forgot to unclog, it was more than I could take. After finishing the chapters I needed to edit for the day, I gave my face a good aggressive rub with both hands and burst out of my chair with a force wrangled from deep within my vitamin D-deprived soul. Katie wouldn't be home for a few hours yet, and would probably come home with a stack of papers to grade anyway, so I knew that if I didn't find something significant to bide my time with, I'd wind up driving her bonkers. I'd been walking on eggshells around her, trying to keep the peace. Our storage room in the basement was in a constant state of flux, leaving us needing to dig through this bin or that box to find something on a pretty regular basis. So I found the label maker and headed down to slap some helpful words on the outsides of each container to ease our searches. Can of Coke, fresh roll of tape in the machine, and I was ready to go set up on a card table next to the washing machine with a feeling of purpose coursing through my veins like adrenaline. 
The first few were easy. Christmas decorations, past years of tax returns, clothes I refused to get rid of even though Katie and I both knew I was never going to wear them again. I labeled them all appropriately, even with a clothes I should donate but won't that I knew Katie wouldn't get a kick out of, and then put them back on the shelving unit. The next box was a mess, a jumble of random crap that was surely entirely my fault. I sorted everything out in piles of like items on the floor. None of it was enough to fill an entire plastic tub, so I just pulled down the next one and continued with my job. College textbooks valued at approximately three mortgage payments, and cross-stitches Grandma Chloe gave me that I don't know what I'm supposed to do with. We're back on the shelf when I came upon another junk box that I set right to sorting. Random tools, a few pairs of rubber gloves, and a worn copy of The Great Gatsby were placed in respective piles on the floor when I grabbed out the next thing without even looking. It was a plastic grocery sack, stuffed full of something that stretched out the bag in hardened points, threatening to split it open in several places. It was full of brass wall plates. And right on top was THE brass wall plate, swipe of beige paint and all. A sense of cool, sick calm slid down my spine. I set it down beside me and finished sorting out the box. Lips set tight, nostrils flared. I put everything in an appropriate spot, labeled the bins, picked up the plate and my mostly forgotten pop, and headed upstairs. I sat at the island staring at it for the next couple of hours, just waiting for Katie to get home. In some ways, everything finally made sense, but in others, things were more confusing than they'd ever been. So, Katie had done it. She'd switched the cover and hid the original? But why? Katie was a tease when it was fun. None of this had been any fun. Not one damned second. The evidence was right there in my hand, as shiningly clear as the sun on a bright day. But there was no reason for it. She normally would have given up the ruse after a minute or two. This had been going on for over a week. Now, it wasn't a prank. If it wasn't a prank, it was mean. And if it was mean, then I was going straight from annoyed to irate. I come bearing chocolate. Natty is sucking up again. Weirdly enough, all one has to do is their homework in order not to fail, and yet... Katie rambled as she walked through the garage door. When she caught sight of me sitting at the island, she froze. Whoa. What's that look for? I held up the cover, letting it dangle from my finger at an angle. My gaze purposely moved from it to her face. Found this in one of the bins down in the storage room. Weird, right? My eyes were fixed on her reaction. So far, she was giving me nothing. I don't know. You were so obsessed with them. It kind of makes sense in a ridiculous Dan way that you'd keep it. I'm surprised you didn't make a voodoo something out of it. She put her computer bag on a chair at the kitchen table and half threw the box of chocolates onto the island in my direction. They were the good kind from our favorite candy shop, but eating them couldn't have been farther from my mind. Dan, I told you I'm done with this. Why did you do this? 
did you think it'd be funny watching me get confused, telling me that I should get help from a doctor while you were laughing behind my back? What is wrong with you? I dropped the cover to the counter where it clanged loudly, loving the way the sound made her cringe. Katie stomped over, snatched it up, and threw it in the garbage. The fact that you think I would do something like that to you proves just how fucked in the head you are right now. I didn't change the cover. I didn't give a fuck about them when we moved in, and I don't give a fuck about them now. Bring it up again, and either I leave or we go see a shrink together. She gripped the edge of the counter so hard it looked like her knuckles were about to burst through the skin. An ultimatum now. Nice. Real fucking nice. I had my keys and was out the door she'd just come in before she even had time to huff at me. That night, as I was tossing and turning on Chris's couch, all I could think about was that stupid wall plate laying in the garbage can. I went home after I knew she'd be gone for work and edited straight until she got home again. We skirted around each other all night, each of us doing our share of cabinet slamming and foot stomping. I slunk from room to room, ate cereal on the guest bed, and spent most of the night with a scowl on my face screwed so tight I could already feel a new wrinkle starting to form between my eyebrows. It became our new routine, and I was a prisoner, trapped inside by a stupid job I'd once loved and the bars of marital tension that we'd installed on every single door and window in our house. Finishing sorting things in the storage room became my mission. At least there was one thing I could process and make some kind of organized sense out of in my life. Three days of free hours was how long it took to finish the job. There was a niggling ache running up the sides of my spine from all the hauling and lifting I'd been doing. It was hell getting older. Who would have thought that at 35 I could feel like 90 some days? As I rubbed at the tightened muscles, I looked up at the last box cardboard, a little rough on the corners, labeled in Katie's script with photo albums. If the box's contents matched the writing, it was going to be heavy. But since it looked like it had made at least a few moves with Katie over the years, I felt the need to verify. God knows a few similar ones of mine didn't match what I'd likely written on them, half drunk in the middle of some moving day or another in college. It was heavy, but not unmanageably so and I had it on the floor and open in a matter of seconds. The top photo album was bright red and marked in gold sharpie, junior year. My cheeks twitched up in a smile despite myself as I opened to the first page. Katie and I had known each other in college, been friends even, but I had been way too interested in drinking and had taken myself a million times too seriously as an English major to see what a good thing was often right in front of me. It hadn't been until we'd met up in the summer after graduation, just the two of us, in the city we'd both moved to for the jobs we were excited about and terrified of, that things had started to click into place. She'd been my person ever since. She looked different back then, but still so familiar I could practically smell the shampoo she used to use and feel the skin on her exposed hip. I remembered the top picture, had even been at the party it was taken at. Shoulder to shoulder with a couple of friends, Katie was in the center, clearly driving the posing if her obvious level of commitment was to be taken at face value. 
They had their hands up by their overly, ridiculously serious pounce, fingers spread in a display of perfect jazz hands. (laughs) I was full on smiling, allowing myself a moment to reminisce, when, without warning, unease crept over every inch of my skin. It wasn't there. The freckle on Katie's left ring finger. It wasn't there. I squinted so hard at the picture, brought it up so close to my face that there was no way I could have missed it. It wasn't that I couldn't see it. It was that it didn't exist. My hand swiped at the bottom corner of the page until it finally caught, flipping it over so I could look at the next. That freckle was noticeable. It was always visible before I'd put a ring on her finger that covered it up. That fucking brown speck, it wasn't in a single picture. The room spun around me, and I dropped the album to the floor between my feet, head between my knees. There had to be an explanation. There had to be. Maybe I was misremembering when she got the freckle. Maybe she hadn't gotten it until later in college, or even after. Maybe the summer we connected before we'd gotten close. Yeah, that would make perfect sense. If only it was possible. Because the day I'd put that ring on her finger, she said, Oh, thank God. I've been waiting for this day for months because now that ugly freckle I've had since I was a kid will finally be covered. She said that partially as a tease to me and partially because it was true. Her mom had even commented on it when we'd met up with them a few days after our engagement. So if that freckle had always been there, then where the fuck was it? I put the album away and tucked it back up on the shelf. It felt like my hands didn't fit right on my body, in my pockets, pushing through my hair. Every inch of me felt clumsy as I put things away, slapped off the light, managed to get myself up the stairs in one piece. Katie was coming in the back door when I emerged from the basement, and I was on her before she could get the bag off her shoulder. Let me see your ring. Her eyes opened wide, breath sucked quickly into her lungs. I knew I was acting crazy, but I had to see. I needed to see that freckle was there and everything was fine. I'd just seen it last week, so it had to be there. Where else would it be? My ring? What? No, get away from me, Dan. Her voice quavered as she backed herself against the wall. Her left hand was balled up in a fist, but her eyes were boring into mine like they were digging for something. Trying to hide something? What in the hell would I be trying to hide? She shoved her hand behind her back. I'll show you. But I want you to tell me what you're looking for first. Don't I at least deserve that when you're coming at me like I'm a criminal in my own house? You have a freckle on your left ring finger, and your ring usually covers it up. I just want to... She shoved away from me and made her way into the kitchen. My sluggish brain was still trying to catch up, and I chased after her, grabbing her hand and pulling her to me. What are you doing? It'll only take a second. Just... Jesus Christ, I'm not going to hurt you. Just let me look. Please. I tugged at the ring until it slipped down to her knuckle, leaving nothing but bare, evenly colored skin behind. I don't have a freckle on my finger. He must be getting me confused with your other wife. She pulled her hand free, 
I let it fall and step backwards, almost tripping over a wayward shoe in the process. You, you had a, a freckle. It was right there. Imagine that. You're making things up again. She flung her hand into the air. So what's it going to be, huh? Am I leaving? Or are we going to a shrink together? My eyes scanned every visible inch of her, searching for other imperfections, other things that had changed. <laughs> but when she laughed coldly at my lack of response, her single dimple was there in perfect indentation. Her hair was flipping out in just the right spot to drive her crazy. Her watery eyes looking up at me were the same ones that broke my heart every time. Every time except this one. I'm not wrong about this. I felt like I was in a horror movie I couldn't escape. God fucking damn it, Daniel. You are terrified me. You have completely lost it. I... I can't even be in the same house with you. You're the one who's afraid of me? Are you listening to yourself? I mean, you can't be right. She made her way for the back door. You have lost your mind, and instead of letting me, the person who loves you more than anything, help you, you're turning me into some kind of monster. Well, fuck you, Dan. Fuck you. The door slammed so hard it rattled the wall and knocked a picture to the floor. It was a wedding photo, a close-up of us looking dreamily into each other's eyes. Katie's veil was blowing in the breeze. I looked like a gorilla in my tux but somehow managed to pull it off. There was a picture-perfect garden behind us, the flowers blurred as the lens focused on our faces. Her hand was on my cheek. I could still feel it warm against my skin, just before she leaned in to press a kiss to my lips. It had been a perfect day from start to finish, and just like I remembered it in that photo, a freckle sat just below her engagement band. Sleep wasn't part of my life for the next few nights. I tore through every picture, every album, every file on my phone and computer that had a picture of Katie. The only one, the only damned one that had that freckle was the one in the hallway. It was right there where it was supposed to be, slightly off-center about the size of a tip of a pencil, perfectly round and perfectly Katie. My Katie. I typed out a message to Chris four times asking about the freckle, but each time I could tell exactly how mental I sounded and just deleted it instead. No one else knew Katie like I did. No one but her parents. And while I had a good relationship with them, calling them up and saying I thought Katie had changed may not have gone terribly well for me. She sent me a text asking me to leave the house for a few hours so she could come get some of her things. I didn't know what she'd been doing for the last few days to make do, but I also didn't particularly care. I did as she asked and went out to grab something to eat, barely able to choke down a few bites before giving up and getting the rest of my meatloaf and mashed potatoes to go. When I got back home, she'd been there and left. A note was waiting for me on the kitchen island. Dan, 
This is killing me. I'm so scared for you, I don't even know what to do. I think we need to discuss the possibility that something may be seriously wrong. Early onset dementia or something. I'm sure that's going to piss you off. But I love you. And something is very wrong. People don't just change like this. Dan, not whatever you think is happening with me, and not whatever is happening inside of you. I don't want to turn my back on you, not now or ever. But if you aren't going to let me help, that's what's going to end up happening. Please let me help. I love you so much. Katie. I crumpled up the note and dropped it back on the counter. Dementia. Fuck that. I focused on work. I'd gotten a bit behind on the pages I was supposed to be editing on a pretty tight timeline, so I finished that up and a little extra, hoping that above and beyond would make up for the lacking effort I'd put forth. The house felt empty. Katie's usual humor and vibrant energy gone, making the whole place dull. Maybe Katie was right. Maybe there had never been a freckle on her finger. Maybe I had switched the wall plate right after we moved in. I had months of memories that contradicted it, but maybe, maybe. It made a hell of a lot more sense than things just randomly changing out of nowhere. I sent her a text that I would go see a doctor, that I wanted to go alone. She said it was fine, but she wanted to know I had really gone and wanted me to share with her what the doctor said. I agreed to that as well. It took a bit of digging, but I found a doctor at a memory clinic who was willing to take new patients and got an appointment for two days later. I put the wedding photo of me and Katie, frame and all, in an envelope. Evidence. As I sat in the waiting room for my doctor's appointment, I felt a hundred years old. Sleep was a rare commodity. Food hadn't sounded appealing. And sitting in that damned chair all day trying to get as much work done as possible was wreaking havoc on my back ergonomic chair, my ass. The waiting room was filled with elderly people, blue hairs as Katie would have called them. And I felt so out of place. It was as if my skin was going to crawl right off my body. I didn't belong here. My memory was fine. It was everything else that was wrong. I had the picture of Katie. It proved everything. She had that freckle. It had been there. I had touched it, looked at it, kissed it a thousand times. It had been there, and now it was gone. I knew it like I knew my eyes were blue. A nurse with deep smile lines and a thick black ponytail called me back a few minutes later. She took my blood pressure, weight, and height and settled me in an exam room to ask me a few questions. I gave her the abbreviated account of what had taken place and started to pull the photo out when she stopped me with a gentle hand to the top of the envelope. I'll let you show that to Dr. Johansson. I wished I could have remembered the name she gave me, because then I could have properly thanked her when she left me alone to wait. As it was, she just gave me a smile and left. I tried to give her one in return. The room was suffocatingly small. No windows, two uncomfortable chairs, an exam table. I stretched my legs out in front of me, trying to ease the ache running up my spine, but it was of no use. Lab rats had better accommodations than this. 
After what felt like an eternity, but was probably closer to 10 minutes, Dr. Johansson came in the room. I recognized him from the website. Blonde hair, wire-rimmed glasses, a middle-aged, slightly filled-out body. He greeted me with a handshake and asked if I was okay with him sitting next to me. A bit of informality to make our conversation less doctor-patient feeling. I nodded in agreement and he sat beside me, scrolling through something on the iPad situated in his lap. So, Mr. Clark, it seems you're in typically good health. Low blood pressure, good cholesterol levels. Nothing really here except your peanut allergy. I laughed, but my chest tightened, the feeling creeping up to wrap around my throat like a determined fist. No. No, I'm not allergic to peanuts. I eat peanuts all the time. With all due respect, Mr. Clark, is it okay if I call you Dan? You were hospitalized for a reaction three years ago. You picked up your EpiPen prescription just last month. It's right here. He showed me the program on his iPad, but my vision was swimming too much to make much sense of it anyway. I literally sat in a bar and ate peanuts with my friend last week. My mouth dropped a bit before I snapped it shut, remembering what Chris had said about how he thought I was allergic to peanuts. If I'm allergic to peanuts, which I'm not, why didn't that affect me? I'm not sure. Dr. Johansson cleared his throat and typed a few things. I'm not crazy. I know I'm not allergic to peanuts. I don't care what your chart says. I know I'm not allergic. Doesn't a guy know what he is and isn't allergic to? Especially if I'm so allergic that I wound up in a damned hospital over it? I stood, needing to move, needing to do something with my angry energy before I completely lost my cool. Holding the envelope to my chest, I looked down at the doctor who, annoyingly, was looking up at me calmly. Mr. Clark, I understand this is very upsetting for you. Please, take a seat so we can continue to talk about this. No, I think I'm good standing, thanks. Okay. Well, have you ever heard of the term confabulation? The doctor's eyes were shifting around my face to everywhere but my eyes. My own bore directly into his, trying to force him to look at me just for a second just to ease the feeling, twisting my guts into rope. Never. What is it? Confabulations are instances of misremembering. It can be anything from a memory creation to an altering of an actual event to someone believing with everything inside of them that something happened that never actually did. I believe that what you're experiencing, Mr. Clark, is a series of confabulations. Dr. Johansson's eyes finally looked into mine, but they were gone just as fast as they'd arrived, glancing back down at the iPad balancing on his slim legs. They're often referred to as accidental lies. Now, they differ from other similar memory creations that we see because they're completely without any kind of intended manipulation or ill intent. But I'm not making things up. I have... Hold on, let me grab it. I sat back down and dug in the envelope. My wife has a freckle, a little mole on her left ring finger. She talks about it all the time. When I proposed, she said she was happy that the ring would cover it up. I've looked at that mole almost every day that we've been together. 
But now, it's gone. I, I know how that sounds, but it's gone. It's gone from her finger, and it's gone from every single picture of her except this one. I held out the framed wedding photo to him. Dr. Johansson took it and looked, holding it extremely close to his face as if giving it a thorough inspection. He set the iPad on the counter beside him. May I? He turned the frame over, looking at me. I nodded, and he opened the back of the frame, carefully taking the photo from inside. He turned it in his hands, taking obvious care not to touch the glossy front side with his fingers, holding it very gently at the very edges. Again, he brought the photo close to his face, took a deep breath, and blew across the surface. What are you... But I didn't need to finish the question. The freckle, the mole on Katie's finger, blew away, right off the photo and into thin air. Dust. I'm so sorry, Mr. Clark. I really am. <sighs> my body slumped back into my chair, hands covering my face. The envelope on my lap slid to the floor, the sound of it falling to the tile filling the otherwise silent room. My heart pounded me into dizziness. I'm not crazy. No one said that you are. I believe that you are absolutely sure of everything you're telling me. Unfortunately, what you are remembering is simply not reality as the rest of the world knows it. There are many possible explanations, and I'd like to do some tests to see if we can get to the root of what's happening. How do you feel about that? Fine. I finally lowered my hands just to cross them over my stomach. Whatever you think. Can you, uh, can you write all this down so I can show it to my wife, please? I'll get you a full summary of our appointment today. The doctor bent down to pick up the envelope that had been lost to the floor. He put the picture back inside and returned it to me. So, it's your professional opinion that nothing has actually changed, and it's just me and these... Confabulations. Right. Confabulations. And I get that. I do. I know how it sounds, saying that things around my house have changed, that my wife's freckle disappeared. But that peanut allergy thing, that's weird, right? Like, a person just doesn't get over a peanut allergy at 35. No, they don't. But I ate peanuts last week. I've eaten peanuts my whole life. I love peanuts. Are there any peanut products in your house? Yeah, we've got peanut butter, and I love those little cheesy crackers filled with peanut butter. You've eaten them at home recently? I pondered it for a moment, shrugging. Uh, I don't really remember. I haven't had much of an appetite lately, though. Go check your pantry. I'd like to see you again in two days. We'll begin testing at that time. Does that work for you? That's fine. A little sigh filled my chest, and I was powerless to stop it from coming out. You really think I'm making all this up? Mmm, misremembering. Confabulating. I don't think you're doing it on purpose, and I don't think you're doing it to be difficult. 
I think something is just happening in your brain that's making you believe without a shadow of a doubt that these things have changed. We'll get to the bottom of it. I'll do everything I can for you, Dan. Thanks. I appreciate it. We shook hands. His was weak and it sent a shiver up my spine, made goosebumps break out across my skin. Stop at the front desk on your way out and have them set up an appointment for two days from now. I nodded and did as I was told. Katie came home that night. She looked terrible. Beautiful, as always, but terrible. Like she'd barely slept or eaten in the days since she left. I was sure I looked the same to her. How'd your appointment go? No preamble. I was happy for it. We didn't need small talk after what we'd been through. I was busy digging through the pantry. I couldn't find the damned peanut butter. Apparently I'm confabulating. Uh, Basically, something is making my brain misremember things. I'm going to go start doing tests in a couple of days. I've got the printout from the appointment on the island for you to look at. Thanks. She sat down on one of the stools and rested her chin on her hand while she read. What are you looking for in there, anyway? The goddamned peanut butter. What? Are you trying to kill yourself now, too? Her hand fell to slap against the quartz countertop. What are you talking about? You're allergic to peanuts. I'm not allergic to peanuts. Then why did I sit at your bedside when you were in the hospital because a restaurant didn't listen to the fact that you had a peanut allergy three years ago? Why do I carry an EpiPen in my purse every time we go out in public? Katie, I'm not allergic to peanuts. I ate them at the bar with Chris last week. What the fuck, Dan? Why would you do that? Because I'm not allergic to peanuts. I know you keep peanut M&Ms in your car. Go get them. I'll prove it to you. I am not giving you peanuts. I know you're a mess right now, but I'd still like to keep you around. She picked up the paper again and rolled her eyes at me. Katie, I promise it'll be okay. Please, I swear to God, I'll clean the bathrooms for two years if you get me the peanuts. You say you have an EpiPen for me. Go get it. It's in the bathroom. Second drawer down. How do you not know where your EpiPen is? Dan, this is serious. Yeah, I know it is, and I'm seriously not allergic to peanuts. Katie, please, I'll get that and you get the M&M's. I promise it'll be okay. You know what? Fine. Maybe an ambulance ride will finish this once and for all. She got up and stomped out to the car. It took a bit of digging, but I found the EpiPen right where Katie had said it would be. My name was on the prescription label, but I'd never seen it before in my life. I'd never even held an EpiPen before. Didn't know how to work it or anything. Katie was already back at the counter when I got there. A bag of peanut M&M's in hand. Here you go. She tossed them to me. I took them and ripped them open, shaking out a few into my hand before popping them into my mouth and chewing. I can't watch this. Her brow was knitted tight, hands gripped together in her lap. I need you in here. You need to see this. 
your mouth is going to get itchy. Then you're going to have trouble breathing. Your neck and tongue are going to swell. And I'm sticking that thing in your leg the first sign of any of it that I see. Got it? No arguments here. I ate a few more. It was a full-sized bag, the kind you get at the grocery counter. I ate them all and then sat next to Katie. Come on, I'll tell you about my appointment. She gave a wary look, a full-on side-eye, but didn't disagree. The whole time I was talking and filling her in, she kept staring at me. Minutes went by and she didn't relax. In fact, she got more tense. So what do you think? I think you should be on your way to the hospital right now, but... But I'm fine. You can't be fine. I watched you almost die because you ate food that had been cooked on the same counter as something with peanuts in it. What is going on? I don't know, Katie, but I'm not allergic to peanuts and I never have been. I used to gross my mom out growing up because I loved peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. Your mother is the one who gave me a list of all the restaurants in town that were good about accommodating your allergy when we first started dating. No, Katie, she didn't. But I have an EpiPen and apparently it's on my medical chart that I'm allergic to peanuts, but I'm not allergic to peanuts. I have a lifetime of peanut-related memories. She opened her mouth to say something, but it just closed instead, shoulders slumping. I don't understand. She reached for my hand and I pulled it up onto the countertop. You know that I'm allergic to peanuts the same way that I know you have a freckle right here. I slid her finger to the side and brushed my thumb against the spot. I guess we're both confabulating then. She squeezed my hand in hers and leaned into me, resting her head on my shoulder. I'm sorry I didn't believe you. I get why you didn't. If the roles had been reversed, I probably wouldn't have either. And it was true. I wished I could have done that for her. But in the end, I would have been worried that she was losing her grip on reality, not agreeing with her that reality had changed. Because that was really the crux of it all. Reality wasn't what it had once been. But if my Katie had changed, and this Katie's Dan had changed, then where were we? What was this? I don't want you to go back to that doctor. She pulled back to look me straight in the eye. I don't think he's going to be able to give us the help we need. He's going to do tests and see what's going on with me. Maybe he can do it for you, too. Dan, we're not having simultaneous confabulations, or whatever he's calling them. Whatever's happening is affecting both of us. It's not a memory issue. What, like a gas leak? Fuck if I know. Maybe. <sighs> she sighed, moving a hand back through her hair and leaning both elbows on the counter, forehead against her palms. It's not like anything changed when I was staying at Jamie's, so... That's where you went? Did she make you go out partying every night? She's my only friend without kids. I thought it would be the least inconvenience asking her if I could stay there. 
Why? You wouldn't like me out partying? More like I don't think hangovers mix well with teaching middle school. They give you enough of a headache as it is. She smiled, but it didn't reach her eyes. Maybe we should just let it go. Forget about it. Move on. Hmm. I thought it over for a minute, humming and tapping my toe against the island. In a way, it sounded appealing, and I understood why she suggested it in the first place. Everything about the two of us had always been so easy. Being estranged had felt like having a limb removed. All I wanted was to sit on the couch with her and make fun of whatever movie we put on until we were both laughing too hard to finish. To get coffee on Sunday morning and while away the hours taking turns at the New York Times crossword puzzle. I wanted that and so much more. Wanted all the things we'd been planning for, all the hopes we'd hung our hats on, and every wish we'd whispered to each other in the dark. It was all there, still present, urgent, aching deep inside me. But it hurt now in a different way than it had in the past, when every wish had just seemed too far away, too impossible. Now it hurt because it was right there, the cusp of possibility within my reach. But Katie wasn't. This wasn't my Katie, and I wasn't her Dan. She looked like her and smelled like her, but her freckle was gone. She might as well have changed her name for how different that made her to me. Yeah, if we aren't crazy now, we're going to get there fast trying to figure this out. I picked up the envelope with our wedding photo inside and gave her a weak smile. I'm going to go put this stuff away. Maybe go to the store for some peanut butter after. She huffed a little laugh and stood, moving to the fridge. <laughs> I'll make dinner. I tapped the envelope against my palm as I walked to the hallway and glanced back at her as I pulled the framed photo from inside. The room swirled around me as I looked at the picture behind the glass, almost dropping it to the bamboo floor below. The freckle was back, right where it was supposed to be, just below the gleaming band of the ring. I heard her voice from the kitchen, light and airy. It wasn't my Katie, though. My Katie was in the photo. But now she was screaming. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, 
Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.